Awesome. So good to be here. Open up God's Word together. What a beautiful thing to be part of a church family. Uh, if you're visiting, my name's Brennan, one of the pastors here. We're so glad you're here. You are welcome here. Um, and we really mean it. Uh, this is a community, this is a family that's open to everyone. And so we want to make sure that you really feel that, that this is a place you can come regardless of where you're from. This morning, I wanted to talk about a deep desire that I believe we all feel intuitively. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. doesn't matter your religious experience. doesn't matter your culture. doesn't matter your age. You know, I've felt it powerfully at certain points in my life. Like flying over a city at night and looking at all the lights beneath. Like sitting on a beach and staring out at the horizon. Like looking up at the moons upon moons of stars at night and staring in wonder. We felt it as a nation when 21-year-old Courtney Vine sunk that goal and sealed uh, Matilda's victory over France and entry into the semi-final in the uh, Women's World Cup. It's a desire taken up by nearly every major event or corporation across our nation. Qantas, the spirit of Australia, Eurovision, United by Music, CBA, Commonwealth Bank, together we can, or even the Sydney Mardi Gras, no future is a match for a future where we're together. What's this deep desire I'm talking about? What's this desire we all feel? It's the desire to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. A desire to be connected to one another. See, the truth is we all deeply feel this desire to be united and yet at the moment it feels like it's becoming less and less possible. We seem to be increasingly divided. Just globally, so much war and fighting in the, in the world at the moment. Ukraine or Taiwan or Syria or Niger. A politics, it seems so fractured, it seems so negative, it seems so aggressive. Just sound bites and political maneuvering, no real heart to be understanding one another. The divide between conservatism and progressivism. The divide between the wealthy and the poor. The divide between climate activists and industry activists. Between the yes campaign and the no campaign. Between renters and landlords. Our culture increasingly, it seems like, forms tribes that view others as the bad guys. They're just They're just the wokes, or they're just the elites, or they're just the conservatives, or they're just the religious bigots, or they're just misogynists. And it's made worse by the reality that we're just so busy, we're connected online, we can have meetings globally in a heartbeat at work, but we don't even know our own neighbors. And we seem to have few friends, because we just don't seem to have the time. And a common experience to live in this city is to be surrounded by people, but to feel somewhat alone. To borrow a phrase from the famous poet Samuel Coleridge, it's water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. We deeply feel we should be connected to others, and yet we don't experience. 
Perhaps you could say, people, people everywhere, but no one with whom to drink. You know, what if the solution to our struggle as a society was found somewhere right before our eyes? What if it was hidden in plain sight? I'm out to convince us this morning that there is a teaching of Jesus in the pages of the Bible that is able to powerfully heal our society. More, it's able to powerfully heal you. It's a teaching that, rightly understood, is able to powerfully unite people and break down tribal barriers. It's a teaching that has the power to strengthen democracies and to answer many of our deepest longings as people. But it's a teaching that has been completely overlooked. More than that, it has been rejected by our culture and is considered by many to be not the solution, but the cause of the division and pain in our world. What is this teaching of Jesus? What is this impossible teaching, this overlooked teaching? It's Jesus' teaching on sin and judgment. It's almost intuitively, we want to say when you hear that, it's the, there's the absolutely no way that could be true. I mean, sin? I mean, judgment? I mean, uniting us? Is this a joke? And no one perhaps better captures our thinking as a culture on this in the 21st century than Richard Dawkins. Uh, in his famous book, The God Delusion, uh, he writes, speaking on the writings of early Christian theologians, he says this, it captures what we think about it intuitively so well. He says, of these early writers, they could have devoted the pages, their pages and their sermons to extolling the sky, splashed with stars, or mountains, and green forests, seas, and dawn choruses. These are occasionally mentioned, but the Christian focus is overwhelmingly on sin. Sin, 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 sin. What a nasty little preoccupation to have dominating your life. Sam Harris is magnificently scathing in his letter to a Christian nation. Your principal concern appears to be that the creator of the universe will take offense at something people do while naked. This prudery of yours contributes daily to the surplus of human misery. That's what we think about almost intuitively when it comes to the topic of sin. Our modern ears view any topic or talk of sin as a nasty little preoccupation, prudery and judgmentalism. But I'm out to convince us this morning, quite to the contrary, that it was at the core of Jesus' purpose in coming to the world and that rightly understood it has the power to unite us all. And to do this, I'm going to read from a section of one of the biographies of Jesus' life, the Gospel of Matthew. In this section, Matthew, the author, describes Jesus calling him to become a disciple. If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Thread That Binds Us Together. And I've got two points this morning, but really I want to be upfront with you. I'm out to convince you. I'm out to convince you that Jesus' teaching on sin contains the answer to our deepest sense of longing to be connected. Well, why don't we read the passage? I'm going to pray and then dive into the message this morning. And the passage is Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It's up on the screen for those that might not have a Bible with them. 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, says this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You join with me in praying. Lord God, we thank you for this word, your word this morning, a word that speaks to us, Lord God. We pray as we examine this topic, this topic that explores sin and the teaching of our Lord Jesus, that you would open up our eyes to see how truly we are joined to one another and can find hope and purpose and meaning in you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's dive right in with my first point of two points this morning. Point number one, the condition we share. You know, we're going to dive in and look at this passage a little more in depth. But before we do, it's probably worth beginning by defining what we even mean by sin in the first place. See, in our culture, most commonly, uh, sin refers to something a little bit naughty. Uh, Something a little bit naughty, like, for instance, in the famous uh, streets Magnum uh, ad campaign. It's so good, it's sinful. Uh, Or more recently, last year, they had an ad campaign, The Seven Deadly Sins, which were actually seven different varieties of Magnum. Uh, Great chocolate, by the way. Um, That's a side note. A sin in the Bible, however is about breaking God's law. It's about personal rejection of God as God. It's about turning inward and focusing not on God, but on ourselves and our own desires. And with that in mind, let's dive in and take a look at a passage. In verse 9, Matthew reveals that before following Jesus, he was a tax collector. And we're not told if Matthew had any prior interaction with Jesus. But it's likely he was aware of who Jesus was. In verse 1 of chapter 9, it says that they were in Capernaum, Jesus' hometown, and that was a very small place. Uh, Tax collectors, their role was to collect taxes, uh, custom levies for moving goods between jurisdictions uh, from one place to another. And Capernaum bridged the jurisdictions of two Herods, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, And they were both like kind of mini countries. So it was a prime location for collecting taxes. Tax collecting, however, made Matthew a sinner in the eyes of everyone. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, he worked for the conquerors of his homeland. He was a national trader. It would be something akin to a Ukrainian collecting taxes for the Russians in an occupied territory of Ukraine. It wouldn't be viewed very nicely by the locals. Secondly, there was this kind of system that lent itself to exploitation. Uh, There was a system of buying rights to, literally they're described as tax farmers, to farm taxes in certain areas. Uh, What you would do is you would pay upright for the right to collect 
a certain tax in an area. You would pay that money in full, and then you would collect the tax to reimburse yourself, plus as much additional tax as your heart desired on the end. So it was right for being uh, exploiting people. And so these people were hated as national traitors and corrupt extortionists, ripping off their very own people. Uh, Leon Morris, in his commentary, says this. He says, In the eyes of Jesus' audience, there were no more wicked people than tax collectors as a class. These were the most wicked of people in the eyes of those around them. It's really hard to convey the sense of hatred the average person would have felt for Matthew. But Jesus walks past his booth and simply says, follow me. Now, what Jesus means by this is probably lost in us. You know, as we hear that, we probably think, Jesus means, does Jesus mean follow me as in come on a walk with me? I want to show you something. Uh, Does he mean follow me? Let's eat lunch. I'm famished. What does he mean? But Matthew understood clearly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, Matthew, I want you to become one of my disciples. I want you to follow after me. In Luke 5, uh, describing the same event, uh, Luke says that Matthew left everything, stood up and followed Jesus. It wasn't simply that he abandoned his booth. He left his whole career and wealth behind to follow Jesus. Uh, Luke also tells us that in response to being invited to become a disciple of Jesus, Matthew organizes a great feast in his home and everyone is invited to come and celebrate. The problem is Matthew's a social outcast. He's a social pariah. He's hated by everyone. So who are his friends? Well, it's a who's who of the local troublemakers and outcasts. All of his tax collector mates and likely others that were outcasts, likely prostitutes and pimps and thieves and Roman soldiers, anyone associated with the scandal uh, or a pagan that would have been rendered them bad company amongst the local people. You know, today, uh, if it was... His tax collector mates, they'd probably be con artists. And who the others that would be the relevant uh, equivalent for today would probably be like drug dealers and pimps and bikey gang members and sex offenders, all the local parolees in the area. And so imagine this picture of Jesus reclining at the table with his disciples and Matthew and this who's who of trouble. You know, it reminds me of just uh, a recent uh, Lunch, Charlotte and I were having at a local cafe, and this couple walked in, and you could just immediately tell there's something a bit different about this couple. Uh, You could tell by their clothing. It was not like how people normally dress out here. Uh, Their appearance, their face was kind of drawn, and the guy had a couple of teeth missing, and the language that they were speaking was a little bit rough, and I'm a terrible eavesdropper, and I started eavesdropping on their conversation at the table right behind us they were sitting at, and I quickly realized they were planning a drug deal using the word Gucci for the drugs. He was talking about, yeah, I'm just going to get on the train and go down and I'm going to give over the Gucci to him. And, mate, I hope oh, my problem will be, it'll be done then. It'll be done then. Once I get, just get the Gucci to him and then walk away, walk away, and we'll be right. We can go to Canberra after that and we should be sweet. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. There's a drug deal being planned right behind me. I'm having lunch. Um, But these are the type of people that would have been eating around this table with Matthew. And the religious leaders who've been watching the whole affair unfold took deep offense. Presumably, after the party has ended, they speak with these disciples. In verse 11, they ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's not an inquiry for 
more information. It's an accusation. He's eating with them. He's breaking ceremonial laws. Also, in that culture, to eat with someone, it, it kind of spoke of friendship. It spoke of embracing that person into your life. Put another way, they ask, why does your teacher condone such dreadful people and their behavior? And Jesus overhears their conversation and offers a stinging rebuke, which has crucial insight into his teaching on sin. Read with me again, verse 12, what he says. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus' metaphor to explain what he's doing is so simple and earthy. He's a doctor. Doctors don't spend their time with people who are healthy. They're concerned with people who are unwell. They're sick. And Jesus is saying, I'm with these people because I've come to lovingly heal them. Yes, they're guilty of dreadful behavior, but I've come to cure their sickness. And he then offers this stinging rebuke by quoting a very specific verse of the Bible. Verse 13, he says, So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus here is quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And in context, Hosea was describing how God's people had become corrupt. Instead of having a genuine, steadfast love for God and for others, they were putting on a religious show. They were going through the motions of ritual and sacrifice, but it was all fake because they didn't really love God. And so what Jesus is saying is study these verses and see yourself in them. If you had a genuine love for God and others, you would also love these people and help them, help them to heal and not reject them. And in doing so, Jesus is implying another crucial truth. Though outwardly religious, they are equally sinners as well. They are not genuinely loving God or loving others. See, Jesus' teaching on sin is incredibly unifying. There is no such thing as good people and bad people. Sin affects every single person on the face of the earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes commandment after commandment and says, God's standard is even higher than you think. You think this, God says, higher. You say, don't murder, he says, even anger. You, says, you say, don't commit adultery, he says, even lustful looks. And he concludes in Matthew 5.48 saying, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or put into the words of St. Paul in Romans 3.23, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, isn't one of the reasons we're so divided that we constantly look down on others? We say things like, what an outrage. How dare they? I would never, ever do something like that. I can't believe they would be so environmentally irresponsible. That was so rude. That was so homophobic. What a racist. What a misogynist. They are so judgmental. They are so dishonest. See, the beautiful truth that Jesus is wanting us to see is there's no such thing as good people and bad people, only people who are both good and bad. We are made in the image of God, and therefore there is something precious, a goodness in all of us. And yet we all have sinned against God, our maker, in word, thought, and deed, and there's something bad in us all. The truth 
of our common sinfulness as people is in fact incredibly leveling. There is no one so good that they're on a level beyond us and no one so bad that we cannot identify with them. According to Jesus, there's no place for looking down on others because we share a common condition. Sin has affected us all. We share a common condition, a thread that binds us together as people. Uh, The famous uh, author, Russian author, Alexander Solonitsyn, in his famous book, The Gulag Archipelago, puts it this way. He says this, this is brilliant. The line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. The line separating good and evil passes through all of us. We are all both good and bad. I think we intuitively understand that our common sinfulness can bind us together. You know, we've got expressions in English like as thick as thieves. It even makes sense that Matthew would have invited other people like himself. Uh, There's this kind of recent ad for the NRL that I think just captures it uh, so beautifully. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an ad about a referee and a banker who find friendship in both being hated by people. And it starts off as like, the referee's like, I misunderstood a nation not liking me just because I'm the referee. And then the banker comes in, he's like, no one likes bankers too, but all I ever wanted to do is to help you financially. And then they come in, because we're only human, just doing a job. And then they're like, you keep the game going, and you keep dreams flowing. And then they start like dancing around. So what if they don't like us? Sometimes they need us. And then a parking inspector comes in, he's like, me too. And then they both say, not you. (laughs) But you know, and we know, and they know that nothing's going to stop us from bringing fans to footy. And, And that's the beautiful end of the ad. It's so good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's this idea of finding unity around being hated together or broken together. It's so good. It's so true. And I think as Aussies in particular, it resonates with us, doesn't it? This idea of our common brokenness, on one level, it's deeply compelling to us. It's the longing that our tall poppy syndrome points to. It's the, what the mateship culture points to, that we're all together. We intuitively know we're not the people we should be. And this truth does hold the power to unite us, to view others with empathy. But there's a problem with it as well. Our sinfulness doesn't just unite us. It also divides us. You know, knowing we're all sinful can lead us towards identifying with one one another, seeing our common sinfulness. But it won't necessarily make us want to do anything about it. I mean, why should we seek to care about others? You know, It's why this city is known for being friendly but not interested in friends. We're busy people with enough on our plate, with no desire to sacrifice to move towards others in love. And this is the nature of sin. It's a rejection of God and a turning in on ourselves that consumes us with our own desires and our own wishes. See, our culture is built on the idea of following our own desires and dreams. And just because someone is broken like us, why should we even care? More if we're sinful, even if we come together, we're going to just keep hurting each other. And that brings us to the second of two points of this message, which is the great physician, point number two. See, Jesus only had 12 disciples. Why would he deliberately pick someone as despised and hated as Matthew to be one of them? 
Well, verse 12 says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And verse 13, Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus never directly tells us why he chose Matthew. But one clear reason is given in this passage. Matthew wants us to see that he chose his tax collector because Jesus is the great healer of sinners. Here was a man who was so visibly broken to all around him, hated as a traitor and exploiter, and becomes an immediate target of the great physician of sinners. Don't be mistaken, I came not to call the righteous does not mean that you can be too good for Jesus. So you've got to remember, Jesus is addressing this line to Pharisees who were, who were equally sinners because they refused to genuinely care for those who are sick with sin. They were equally sinners because they were putting on a show and didn't really love God. If they did, they would have cared for these people. I came not to call the righteous could perhaps be translated as, I came not to call those who think they are righteous. See, sin is the thread that binds us all together, and therefore Jesus came to call everyone religious and irreligious, celebrated and despised, the successful and failures. The question isn't, are you good enough? But do you realize you're bad enough? You know, there's many reasons that you might fail to see a doctor. And I want to let you in on a secret. I'm actually a little bit phobic of doctors. Um, As a child, I suffered from dizziness. And we went to see a pediatrician who told my parents I was lying and making it up. And as a result, I've got this irrational fear that I'll go to see a doctor and they will tell me, there's nothing wrong with you, just go home. And I'm, I'm actually, for some reason, it's irrational, but I'm actually afraid of being told that it's just in my head. Um, well, I got rhabdomyelosis in 2012, uh, which is a condition from being too extreme in exercise where your muscles start to break down and put you into renal failure. And so I was peeing Coca-Cola for a couple of days in complete denial about it until I started to swell with water and start to look a little bit like Santa Claus, And at which point I went to the accident emergency at Royal North Shore Hospital and I was admitted uh, for a whole week there to, to get better. See, there are many reasons for refusing to see a doctor. You can refuse to see a doctor because you're proud, or because you're afraid, or because of laziness, or you're just in denial about the whole situation. But ultimately, when you see that you're truly sick, none of these things will hold you back. It's interesting that in every account of Matthew's call uh, to follow Jesus, immediately beforehand is the same story of Jesus' encounter with a disabled man. There's a huge crowd around the house that Jesus is teaching in, and so there's no way to get close to Jesus uh, for this man. Other accounts explain that this disabled man had four kind of ingenious and uh, quite innovative and determined friends, and they bring the man onto the roof and rip a hole in the roof and lower him down before Jesus. See, this man is desperate. He's unable to walk, so he can't work and he can't provide for himself, and, and his, his life in this context would be hard, and he wants to be healed. And Jesus is impressed by their faith, But what he says is completely unexpected. In verse 2 of chapter 9, he says this. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. We're not told how this man responded to Jesus' declaration of his sins being forgiven. But I think if it was me, I'd be offended. 
What do you mean by sins? It's my legs that are the problem. Can't you see I need help? I wonder if that's how you feel about this whole discussion. You can see sin is a problem in your life. I mean, after all, no one's perfect. But just like the paralyzed man, you don't think it's the main issue. See, our culture says to us that our problem is everything but ourselves. It's our parents. It's the economy. It's bad governance. It's a lack of education. It's a lack of opportunity. It's a lack of access to good health care. But Jesus, the great physician, sees through the superficial to what is the core of our problem as people. That is that our sin has deeply affected us and broken our relationship with God. And he immediately it immediately raises the objection amongst the religious onlookers that this is blasphemy, Jesus speaking this way. Who can forgive sin except for God alone? I mean, if I get my car and I smash it into my neighbor's car or I tell a lie to a friend, you can't come to me and just say, Brendan, I forgive you. I mean, you weren't sinned against. It doesn't make any sense. In the same way... If sin is ultimately against God, only God has the authority to forgive. And the religious onlookers knew enough of the Bible to know that this from Jesus is a claim to be God. And Jesus, full well knowing their objections, says the following in verse 6. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose And he went home. And just by speaking to the man, Jesus demonstrated that he is God the Son and he is able to forgive sins. You see, we have this deep sense of longing to be part of something beyond ourselves, don't we? And to be joined to one another because this is the purpose for which we were made. And yet our sin has created this longing because we have a broken relationship with God. And also with one another. We've become turned in on ourselves and following our own desires. Sin is the thread that joins each and every member of humanity together, but it also drives us apart from one another. But Jesus is the great healer of sinners because he is God himself come to forgive our sins. See, sin is against God and others, and it rightly, therefore, deserves punishment. Sin means that our relationship with God and others is broken. We're disconnected from his heart. And we face just punishment for our sin. And yet Jesus came to heal us by paying the penalty for our sin upon the cross. God the Son suffered for us. God turned towards him in wrath. He experienced the pain of a broken relationship with God and with humanity. So that God could be just in forgiving us our wrongs, and our brokenness. And yet more than that, Jesus rose from the dead to restore our relationship with the God so gracious that he would be willing to even suffer for us. See, to be a Christian is to turn away from living for yourself and to love and trust Jesus Christ and to be joined to his heart of love for God and for others. See, living in Sydney surrounded by millions of people can be incredibly lonely. People are friendly, but busy and not interested in being friends. Many, many people in our city report being extremely lonely for a long period of time. And I know that's a story for many people here before they came to us. But seeing ourselves rightly as sinners deserving God's punishment changes the way we view others. 
They are more, always more like us than different from us. Encountering the great healing, healer of sinners, Jesus, who was willing to suffer and die for us to welcome us in, it leads to the creation of new communities just like this one where people welcome others in. You know, people will sometimes object to me and say, I don't want to go to church and be part of church. It's full of hypocrites. And I just want to say in response to that, yes, but so much more than just hypocrites. Not just hypocrites, also adulterers, also liars, also thieves, also arrogant people, also proud people, also greedy people, also sinners of every type, but who have encountered the great physician, the Lord Jesus. And just in closing, I just want to end by addressing uh, two types of people here uh, this morning. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't describe yourself as a follower of Jesus. I just want to thank you for coming. This is a community where you are welcome. You are welcome here. We are so thankful that you would join us this morning. I just want to say that even if you feel different from everyone else here, there is more that connects us together as people than what separates us. We are joined together by a common thread. I want to invite you, come and put your trust in Jesus today. Come and turn and follow him. Uh, If you're not quite ready to do that because you have questions, join our Life Explored course on the 17th of October. We would love to sit with you and explore some of your questions. But Most of all, we're just thankful that you would join us today. But if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, let's never forget the privilege of being called by Jesus. Just like Matthew, our lives have been transformed. We've had that deep sense of longing fulfilled. We've been joined together as his family. You know, maybe you're you're here today and you're, you're feeling a bit bitter. Someone has wronged you, and you, 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 just, you, you, you just live with that sense before you. I just want to remind you to remember that you have more in common with that person than not, and to offer them forgiveness. Maybe you've been starting to believe that you don't belong here. You need to pause and remember that we are bound together. We all belong because of Jesus. Well, let's end this service by being the church and loving and serving others. Before the band comes up, why don't I uh, close out our time by praying? Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for the privilege of knowing Christ, the great physician. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we were far off, you called us and brought us near and joined us together. Thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to see that every person on this planet is just like us. There is no one more good and there's no one more wicked. We are all the same. We share a common thread. There is good and bad in us all. Lord God, help us to see that Jesus is the one who can heal us and help us to come to him and put our trust in him and so receive his welcome into his family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.